This is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, welcome to the Sandbox Story, which is an interview with Dr. Stephanie Johnson-Brown. Dr. Stephanie, welcome to Sandbox Stories. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's you know, pleasure. your stories, I think, are just going to be fascinating. You're the daughter of an optometrist who started his practice in 1959. I want to hear a little bit about your dad and his involvement in the Chicago community. Well, my dad, the late Dr. Robert Johnson, was, was really a uh, remarkable man. He was a pioneer in several areas, including, you know, our church, as far as, of course, the city of Chicago and the field of optometry. So um, he graduated in 1954, uh, well, 51 from college at, at uh, one of our historically black colleges, Xavier, and then he uh, in 54, he received his master's degree at the uh, University of Chicago, and then he graduated from the Illinois College of Optometry in 1960. He, he joined a practice that was already in place with his partner, Dr. Henry Moore, okay. who also, in his own right, he was a pioneer and, and had many firsts. Um, and that was, I think he finished from ICO, and which wasn't even called ICO then, uh, right. in 1946. So they joined together uh, when he graduated. And while he was not still in school, he had a vision to service uh, the underprivileged. And he started a non-for-profit in 1959 called the Plano Vision Development Center. Well, at that time, it was called Plano Child Development Center, but we refer to it as Plano Vision because it kind of got confused with the child, uh, thinking it's a daycare. Uh -huh. So, uh, so Dad uh, began there, got a, got a lot of support. He was very involved in the community where the practice was at the time, and um, he did a lot of things uh, as far as doing school-based uh vision information seminars and teaching teachers how to work with their kids in the school and what to look for. Um, and to this day, I have people coming and remembering what he did at, in the Woodline Experimental Project. I mean, that was the community that the practice began in. Uh, and they stayed there for seven, several years until the 70s. Um, Dad went on to become his political hat, um, and he was very much involved in the campaign for the first black mayor of Chicago, Mayor Harold Washington. And um, he was a behind-the-scenes guy, but um, he knew how to play the political game. And um, later on, his childhood friend from, from school was the first black county president um, here in Illinois, of the county of Cook. And that was uh, the late John Stroger. And they were great friends. So he was surrounded by political-type friends. And as a result of that, he learned how to uh, work the system to help other people, not just himself. And that's what I loved about him so much. He loved to help those people who were less fortunate. Um, he was able to uh, get 
several contracts which they had started in Chicago at the time with the manpower um, employment and training. We actually, that was the first time I literally saw doing eye exams outside the office actually mobile. And that was, oh my God, that was in the 70s. And he was so inspired with that. By that, he, he uh, connected with one of our city colleges. He started an optometric technicians program, two-year program. Uh, trained techs because we didn't have it. And the ones that we had where you weren't African-Americans, so this was predominantly African-Americans serving the African-American community. Um, so he um, did a lot. Then he went on with his optometric profession and did so much. Um, very involved with the AOA, the National Optometric Association. He was one of their presidents uh, early on. Um, and um, he was right there towards the beginning of the forming of the NOA, which was uh, in 1969. So I think the second convention they had was here actually in Chicago. And it was like a unity. He was able to bring a unity of the, the doctors, the minority doctors in the South who were NOA started to the Northern doctors. And they kind of were together for a common cause. And um, that's what I, I want to see continue happening, all of uh, all optometrists, whether you're a minority or not. But we all work for a common cause. We don't we, we can have all kinds of different, you know, divisions where some of us are more social media savvy and we have Facebook pages to do the same thing. And others are involved in very heavily involved in associations like the AOA or NOA. But I think we can all work together to service people. This shouldn't be a competition. We should all work together. So um, there was, he was awesome. And, um, and I miss him really. Uh, yeah. Said, in fact, <laughs> that's kind of how I became an optometrist. In fact, I was, and I always tell students to, whatever your passion is, you want to go into law, if you want to go into dentistry, whatever you want to go into, try to work in that area. I, for example, thought I wanted to be a teacher because what do you see? Teachers. And my mom was the best first grade from preschool to second grade teacher. That's all her experience for over 30 years teaching. And I thought that's what I wanted to do. So I guess my first year or my second year, yeah, my second year in high school, I went to work with her in the summer. And I said, this was fun playing school, but this was not like you have to, I saw how she had to deal with the administration, the parents, and how it's not just two or three kids. She has a whole classroom of kids who need attention. And I said, oh, no, I'm not doing this. So then I had an opportunity to work in dad's office, you know, later on, you know, when I was like a junior, senior in high school. And then I fell in love. Oh, my gosh. I fell in love with the, the specialty area of vision therapy. It was wonderful just to see these kids. I mean, total personalities change total, uh, their grades change, their behavior change. And I said, what is this? So I started working as an assistant in uh, vision therapy. So that's how he kind of, without saying, you're going to be an optometrist, he just allowed me the opportunity. And as, I love a, as an owner now, you know how it is. So, you know, like with my employees, I'm not just an owner that hasn't done it. I mean, I have started from front desk, optical store, cleaning the bathrooms, doing whatever it takes um, to want to, to be involved in a practice. So my employees can't say you didn't do that because I've done that. <laughs> so, I love the, the stories. 
of how your dad influenced you and your mom did too. And, and you said that you're yes. one of six kids. Um, you're the only right. one that went into optometry. You've got siblings right. and our teachers. You've got one that followed your dad through the military and is a colonel in the military. Right. Um, right. What was growing up like with that family and what influenced you to um, not go towards, say, the military like uh, your dad had and your sister has? Oh, well, early on, I knew I didn't want to do the military because I, I uh, would go, I went camping. I hated it. I was just like, okay. I can't do this outside stuff. And then all of, I have a sister who was a devout uh, physical ed teacher. You know, I exercise, but I can't, I'm not just robustly into it. So okay. I'm like, okay, this is not the area I want, I want to go in. So no, but my, my every, I think all of us worked in the practice at one time, everybody, he did everybody's experience in some capacity. Um, even the only boy, my brother, who is, who, you know, was a, um, accountant before he retired, but his love is really uh, swimming and, and, and helping seniors or young children learn to swim. So he has a, he has a true passion and compassion for that. So when he retired, that's what he, he decided to get a job. I said, why are you working? You don't even need a job. You reti-. He says, because I love to do this. And so I think that's what my parents instilled in us. It's like um, you have good work ethics. You, you try to do something that you're passionate about and, um, you know, do the right thing. And uh, when, we, when it was time to go to college, it was never, oh, well, are you going to college? That was not part of the discussion. The discussion was, which college do you want to go to? That was basically. That's Everybody was going to college, so everybody and everybody did. So. As parents, that's what we want. You know, I hear a lot of optometrists who have a teacher as a, a parent. I don't know. I think there's a, a want in optometry to be educational and, and to be fulfilling to those we work with. So that's wonderful. So let's talk, shift to the Plano Vision Development Center. You talked about it as a not-for-profit. Why right. was it started like that? Why has it been run like that? Okay, so as you know, we have a private practice, which was which was begun with Dr. Henry Moore. Um, that's the Plano optometric part of the practice. But um, there were so many children in the city of Chicago, even Medicaid didn't pay for service, a lot of services. So my dad, who had this love for vision therapy, would go to these conferences, and he gained all this knowledge and all this training. And he would see how kids of means could receive this. And he said, well, our kids need it too. And so as a result of that, he said, so we can just start as a not-for-profit. We can raise money, and then we could qualify for different contracts um, where you had to be a not-for-profit in order to get the contract or to get the grant so that you can support this service and people could pay what they can afford to pay for it. Because I'm, I got to admit, when I, I do the same thing. I go to conferences, and yes, I mean, I'm just going to tell any student, if they really want to make money, even though there's the facade, don't go into this particular specialty because it's not um, a moneymaker. I see so many of them that they're good and they make a lot of money and specializing in this area. So it can be done, but you, you have to do, go beyond what you learn in school and you have to learn to network and be willing to do a lot more um outside of your office training in order to get to that point. So with, you know, with that said, I, 
that's kind of why I, I, I think Plano got started. And and then he he called it Plano. You know why he called it Plano? Because you know, I mean, Plano is an optical term, but but why did he call it that? Yeah, yeah, because of a Plano lens. And he says, okay, a Plano lens is a neutral lens, and Plano is for is is people come there regardless of what their color is, what their uh, sexual orientation is, regardless of their culture, their age. It's just open to everybody, and that's how he came up with the word Plano. That's And then he kind of taught me, even though, unlike him, I'm not a natural politician, even though I've learned how to be a more political person to do because you got to do it to do to get things accomplished, even in the city of Chicago, especially. So he um, later on, I guess it was maybe in the 80s, he said, well, they need to pay for vision therapy, too. And we kept writing proposals and trying to meet with legislators to get the state of Illinois because they paid ophthalmologists. Even though we know it's not much, it's the principle. Why aren't we getting paid? So finally, one day, um, there, the whole group from a uh, big group from, from the state capitol came um, from the medical team, and they met with us. And Dad and I were able to do a fantastic presentation where we let them feel what it's to be like with the, to be like one of these kids. And then in our conference room, um, there's a one way mirror. And it just so happened as we were ending our meeting, therapy started and we could open up the one way mirror and they could literally see these kids doing the activities. And then they said, Oh my goodness, you know, this is one thing to read on paper, but to see it. And I guess by the end in a couple of months, um, then for Medicaid was open to optometrists, so you could bill for um, therapy. Even though, like I said, it's still not very much, but it's the principle. If you want to, you can still do it. Even though people who really a lot of people are very make a lot of money doing vision therapy, they really don't accept it. So that's why yeah. places like uh, Plano is needed, not just for Chicago, but to inspire other doctors in other parts of the country. Um, to give service, you may not start a not-for-profit, but you can give services. You can, I mean, I, and I know a lot of doctors talk to me, and they do it secretly because they don't want people to know. But as a whole, I feel optometrists are some of the most giving and care about their patient uh, doctors that I know. Uh, so they do give back, and maybe not in this way because this is difficult. A not-for-profit is very difficult. Um, you know, because everybody doesn't have, like I have one of our, we have a family member that's a pretty big supporter. And everybody doesn't have a big supporter like that to kind of be a base. And then you can then, or, and we have so many little community supporters that I guess we've been doing these benefits for Plano since the, uh, since the 70s. And every year until this pandemic did we have the, the annual benefit. And it's not like it makes a lot of money by itself, the event, but I mean, I mean, from 100 to 200 people attend, and they're like small people in the community that kind of support the event. And, and um, that's, to me, that's worth a lot. And then well, last year, we, when I, I felt it last year when, you know, we had, we were one of the offices that were looted in, after the George Floyd mm -hmm. uh you know, all of the, that whole type of thing came out last year. And um, 
that was heartfelt, but I, it gave me a lot of opportunity to speak publicly on the news and media work with legislators uh, to say, no, we're staying in this community and we're going to still service our patients. So that's yeah, compelling. So and, and to the idea that you're giving to the community through dealing with all the people who need, in a Plano, neutral way, all the people who need these services is important. You alluded to a family member who's spoken for you. You have a, a nephew who's a, a prominent young man in the sports world whose story got shared because of success that he and his team had in sports. Does does that Has that helped focus any additional public you know, understanding of vision therapy and, and the importance of good visual development? Um, not in our community as much to me, but I, I know when, um, when Larry first went, when he went to that Super Bowl in 2009, they didn't win, but you know, yep. they came up second. Close. Yeah. Um, so they were close. In fact, it was a very close game, but, um, afterwards he was interviewed and they asked him, you know, you innately a really good wide receiver, but what else happened in your life? And he, my dad and I did not say, tell him to say this at all, but he actually said, well, you know, early in my life, when I was in elementary school, I would go home, for, you know, to my, my uh, parents' home, which is Chicago, because he grew up in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, and he says every summer I would take this thing called vision therapy. And, and when I'm at doing drills, I can't, we do different types of routines, and he reminded me of what I did vision therapy, you know, some of the same. So at this young age, he received this type of uh, treatment, but basically to help him be more focused and to help him do better in school, that was the purpose. Who knew he would be a great athlete later? Um, and then, of course, he was he had the blessing of being able to associate with some great players as a ball boy uh, for the Minnesota Vikings. And he really learned how to visualize. He really learned how to focus be aware of his periphery, slow it down, and make those hands and eyes work together. So he, he's a great, and he became such a, um, made such a statement. He did uh, allow the AOA uh, to acknowledge him, um, and he made statements for them. And, and right now, to this day, the College of Vision Development, COVD, actually has a plaque that uh, different doctors in the um in the, the specialty area, they purchase it, and as a result of purchasing the plaque, they uh, put it up, and a lot of the kids mm. see it, and then they know him, and then they, you know, they say, "Oh, he took this. I'm going to take this." Or if he thinks vision is this great and important, you know, I'm going to, you know, take care of it. Even though he didn't have to wear glasses, but he thought a lot about people making sure that they had quality vision service. So when I go to some of those offices or into the, the schools and colleges of optometry and I go into the department and I see his plaque, that's where I see it. But within our local community, you know, we don't really have, I mean, I have plaques up for him, but, uh, and then people see it. But now, you know, he's been in the profession a long time. But the kids who are really into football, we, they still really know. Who, and he's not here, but it's surprising how many people really know know him and of his talent. So, yeah. so it's, been, it's been helpful to be a, a – he's been, he's been great. I'm, hopefully, I'm praying he retires very soon, hopefully this year. And um, 
then I can kind of bug him to be more of a, uh, you know, a supporter and spokesman, not just a financial support, you know. Yeah. Tell me about your presence in the Chicago public schools. It seems like optometrists could take a page out of your book in becoming involved with the schools, not only emphasizing the importance of good children's vision, but how vision supports all of their endeavors. Um, Tell me a little bit about your, your, your work in the public schools in Chicago. Well, we have been in the the school systems, even the poorer school districts in the suburbs um, since um, as long as I can remember. So we've been doing mobile vision exams. And then I was approached uh, by Chicago Public School Systems to work with one of their contractors to kind of manage the program, come up with a, a a comprehensive eye exam that could be done mobile. And that could include doing a dilated exam and not only dilating and making sure their eyes are healthy, but making sure prior to the dilation that they don't have an ocular motor problem, they don't have a fixation problem, they don't have a a problem with focusing, not just a refractive error, not not just giving them glasses to be nearsighted or because they're have astigmatism, but also do they need these lenses to focus? Do they need it to be in a bifocal form? Um, Because if they keep the glasses on that they need to see far, then when they read, it makes their eyes cross. So so to manage and to help the doctors that I manage to kind of prescribe and think functionally, not just the way we're trained a lot medically, um, that's been a challenge, but it's been rewarding. Um, And it carried over from... um, so that we can kind of extend it. So I think the last year, we, of course, that didn't, you know, school school wasn't the same, of course, this year. So it wasn't um, there. We didn't have it this year. But even the last year that we did it, it, we did mobile vision exams for over 50,000. And what we noticed is when we were initially in a, a building where the kids have to be bused, they waste a lot of time on the bus coming in because Chicago's a big area. So depending on where they're coming from, then a lot of traffic going and coming. And um, it was just more effective and efficient to go to the children and to, you know, just to purchase uh, the lanes of equipment so that can be uh, put on a tripod, put up. But, I mean, you can do everything and you can hire your assistants and the doctors. I really just basically did the exam because you had assistants doing just what you do in your own office, just preparing them. So you just had to do your particular job. So um, it, it, it was very, and I'm just praying that other cities pick up on it and, and a few other cities do it also, uh, do a mobile program. So, and even if they don't, if they just start with their community, just, and, it, and if you, practice in a community where the average house, you know, is six, $700,000, go to an area and talk about this area, this, this, this whole relationship to vision and learning and behavior. And even eye health, you know, talk about to the seniors how glaucoma is a silent killer. You don't even know you have it. So educate and go educate people who may not have gotten this service. So, um, and I think there's something every optometrist can do. I mean, don't say, oh, well, I'm not going to start a non-for-profit. You don't have to start a non-for-profit. Do something. You know, that's do a great way to give to back. Optometrists are, well, 
they, they have a wealth of information for both mm -hmm. young and old alike. And, and just to take some right. time to block off an hour or two in the schedule, yes, our production revenue changes, but the right. give back is so important. I, I really appreciate it. So it is yeah. so rewarding. It really yeah. is. Uh, you don't know how many patients, like you may work in a community where the patients are aware, but I work in a, in a community where patients say, I've been going to the eye doctor. They never told me about this. Well, you just need to. And if, and if you don't do the specialty, that's fine. I don't do a lot of specialties, but I refer. So if you can just refer, that's awesome. In fact, you know, I, I can't do this alone. I have had so many doctors, associate doctors to help me. And um, my, my partner, um, who out of the four of us is, is still, he's kind of retired, he says, but I mean, he is retired to private practice, uh, but he is on faculty at the, at the Illinois College of Optometry one day a week, and <laughs> Joseph McCray. And he, um, that's, he does do it because he has a passion, and both of us have that same passion within our, our practice itself. And what our prayer is that that practice can just now be passed down to another doctor. Like my, my kids didn't choose optometry, but I have so many, what I call my kids um, in the optometric profession um, that I've mentored and I've now opened our doors. We have an externship program. I've had some of the best externs um, in and basically, hopefully one of them will come out and say, okay, we want to, we have this passion for and compassion for community service where we want to mix, and our practice is so old that we have a mixture. So we have patients who can come in and spend six, $700. And we have patients who just say, oh, I just want my Medicaid glasses. You know, just show me those, and they're out the door. So, I mean, it's, it's a range, and then you have your private insurance. So, um, and it's a way that you can mix the two and still be successful. Will you be as rich as the people who take no Medicaid and take in no private? No, you will not but you'll be rich in other ways, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, okay. You said that some of your former patients have become staff in your clinic. Have some even gone on to be ODs? Oh, yes. Okay, so in current, yes, okay. yes. Some have gone on. So I've had one of my head vision therapists uh, years ago. She went on um, and graduated from PCO, and she is now a practicing optometrist. And in fact, I just lost my head vision therapist, um, and she began optometry school this past year. Um, and then another one of my mentees is going into optometry school this year. So, uh, and but the one thing I can say about my therapist, they become so good, and we have such a great reputation when they do leave because as a you know, with our office being a community practice and with the non for profit, we can't compete with the pay. So when they get an opportunity to go, I encourage them, you know, so this is a stepping stone and they learn really good work ethics. Um, they learn passion. They learn what real good service is. So they're not like our patients who go other places for a five minute or 10 minute eye exam or an exam that's all technology. That's, they see the doctor five minutes and technology does the exam. And um, they love the, the family. And in fact, some of the experts have said, my goodness, these people, you got generations here. And I mean, and they come yeah. in, and I think when they see, one of the externs told me in the past, she said, the thing that I learned the most from you and Dr. McCray is that you guys have had this practice so long, you have a personal relationship. You can talk to a patient about their mother and now their grandchildren, and they get to see that. It's, so that it's, optometry is a, 
a specialty in and of itself, primary care, but it's personable if that's what you want. You know, if that's the type of setting that you want, that's how it can be. Um, and I love it, but, you know, I'm at this end of it, and so <laughs> I am ready to slow down and kind of pass that torch along. Well, you never know. Maybe one of our viewers will uh, will reach out and be inspired and, and connect with you. But in, I want to talk to you about a bit of advice I think I felt like you gave me when we talked before our interview. You said that optometrists should be a little bit careful or, or, or thoughtful about how patients react to them because sometimes they, the patient will act like we're their psychologist. And, and you said, you know, oh, your dad yeah. had a real keen gift of picking up on observations of people. So give me a little bit more of that advice yeah. about how we assess patients and how we work with them through the patient experience. Right. So um, I used to watch my dad do exams and he could, if all of us who way back in school, we, we, we know about the 21 points. Okay. And uh, basically that's like base out, base in, says, and uh, PRA and RA and FORIAS, but how to tie it all together and how that to really understand that the eye is a window to the mind and to really understand why if, if visual pathways are over 70% of the brain, why could it affect emotion? Why could it affect behavior? How, how is this all possible? And um, how can it be so integral involved in, in a traumatic brain injury patient and you bringing them back uh, to more of the way that they were? So he would do these exams, and after he finished, he could tell the patient, you know, you're really tight. You know, you really need to take a break, maybe have a vacation, um, what's wrong with you? Are you under a lot of stress? I mean, I'm like, how is he knowing this? And even with the children, parents didn't even, like he had a history, but maybe he didn't even look at it. But when he finished, um, he could say, tell the child, boy, you're trying so hard, as hard as you can, but you're really not getting much out of that trying. And I'm looking at him, how did you figure this out? And he, um, so eventually I learned how to do the same thing. But what I also learned is you have to be careful when to share that information. Uh, because what will happen is they'll come back the next year and after your exam, because you forget you did it the, the, the year before, and they say, okay, how was it? Did I look stressed? Did I look too relaxed? Did I look unfocused? You know, so, or you'll get into the point, or, and it, or you, you'll have, have them crying. I mean, I've had so many patients just break down and start crying. Or I've had kids who understand like, wow, you know what I'm going to. And my parents are just telling me I'm lazy and I'm not trying. You get it. How do you know that? Did they tell you? And I said, nope, they didn't tell me. And uh, so sometimes you just have to um, observe the patients and know if they're going to be receptive and know, and know if it's going to help them for you to um, – Kind of, and people have told me before, I don't think it's it. They say, you have discernment. I'm like, I don't know if it's discernment because I'm not doing it just walking down the street with people. Right. Normally, I do it in my exam room, you know. Right. So so I, I think discernment would mean that you can do it no matter what, you know, in any kind of situation. But mine happens more when I'm, you know, personally in there with the patient. So, yeah, that's, that's a kind of strange... Um, thing that I didn't think I would be able to do, but, and, and that's what I hope. And that's why I take the externs in because 
I want to share with them because they come out and they're so, I mean, oh my gosh, disease wise, they are so fantastic. Anything they see, they're like, think it's the worst. And I said, or when they see so much normal, I said, welcome to the real world. This is an optometry school. This is like where people, they're coming there because they are sick. They've been referred. But you're into like a Joe Blow comes in. So most people you dilate, they're going to be fine. And then when you do get one that you can help, um, I've seen them so frustrated because now in optometry school, you can do different things. But here, I have they have to say, okay, what, can you take their insurance? Can we do medical? Can we do an OCT? And, you know, then they get a little frustrated while I say, well, that's all part of the battle now. You got to go and fight with the with the legislators, with insurance companies. And, I mean, basically. Welcome to optometry. <laughs> you mentioned Welcome earlier to that your dad was uh, – at the founding basis of the National Optometric Association. You followed in his footsteps and were also a president of the NOA. For those who don't know much about the NOA, tell us what it does. So the National Optometric Association is a association of primarily uh, underrepresented minorities. It's predominantly African-Americans. And um, its mission is to advance the visual health uh, in minority communities. And um, that's a pretty big goal. And they do that by uh, trying to get more students of color into schools and colleges of optometry. And they also do that by supporting their different associations. And and when you're an optometrist and you kind of need some support, they're there. Or if you're a student and you're just getting out, they're trying to help you to make that connection um, so that's what they and, and they try to ensure that uh, patients, especially underserved patients, get quality exams. They don't just get this quickie stuff in and out because they don't have money. You know, they get a comprehensive exam. And, and I think some people and this is what I've, I've seen because I've volunteered with different organizations and um, to do exams. And I think the doctors mean well. And that they're doing really good and, and, you know, okay, well, these people, you know, they're at least, we're at least doing something to get them to see. Well, that's fine if you're in an underserved country, but you're in the United States of America. So look at everything. Look at function as well as the, the whole physical aspect of, of them. And so um, the NOA does try to ensure that, that people get these types of exams, um, not just, you know, a half exam. And so, in a way, has been really a blessing to me. Um, I just pray that it's after the, our founder, the last it was two founders, uh, Dr. Hallett and Dr. Powell, and Dr. Powell just passed this year. But after the founders have gone, um, and we have a lot of senior board members um, and, and, and members who have been past presidents or who have been heavily involved in the NOA, and they're still, they're still there on, on that battlefield. And I just hope the younger uh, generation will continue to work in conjunction with the NOA, not against, not competing, but work with and so that we can work towards a common goal. Um, And that NOA learns to accept what the younger generation is doing. You know, it's social media era, and this is a way to get more students in. Applaud, okay, And, and, and listen to them commend, and they've done this for me, you know, when I commend them, they'll say, well, you know, if it wasn't for you guys, you set the stage, you set the foundation. 
that's the harmony that I want to see happen. Um, and then I think, and then I want to see them step up. I want them to take these ideas they've had from various um, other groups or Facebook pages, and I want to see them work so hard together. We, we love the NOA. We want to keep it together. Now we're ready to, to step into an association role because I don't think they realize that an association does, is different than a Facebook page, and an association you can mm -hmm. um, get more accomplished politically. You get more accomplished with insurance companies. You need that politically. That's what the AOA has taught me. And NOA is much smaller, you know, less than 800 members, but it's taught me that you have to have an association. And I think if we can bring the, the younger generation together that has has done such great jobs, um, um, like with Four Brown Eyes and Black Eye Care Perspectives, if they can all come together, it'll just, I just think, it'll just, in a way, we'll be blown out the water. I mean, it would just grow so much. But I just need to see our young generation invest in the association. So whether you are paying dues to the AOA or whether you're paying dues to the NOA, if you can't do anything else, you can support them financially. NOA dues is so, I mean, it's so much less than the AOA dues. So at least if you can't belong to both, at least belong to the NOA. And NOA doesn't discriminate. Anybody can be an NOA member. You don't have to be an underrepresented minority. So um, a lot of my colleagues are not, and they they believe in the NOA, and they continue to pay their dues. Um, so that's just my prayer. That's what I want to see happen before, you know, I'm, I leave this earth. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I want to have you give some additional advice. That That's a great summary. Um, you also feel really strongly that optometry's greatest opportunity would be to expand on what you call the functional approach to vision care. And I know that optometrists understand it, but you live it. So give it to the audience. How do they think about that functional approach and embodying it in their patient care every day? Um, listen to your patients. You know, do what we taught in school. Listen to the chief complaint. Don't just look for the physical complaint. Oh, you, you mean your eyes itch? No, listen to everything. Um, and that's one of the key things when my externs approach me. I say, well, what do they do? Uh, then they look at the, the <laughs> they look at the information sheet, the case history, and they say, um, oh, they work at a store. I say, okay, so what else do they do? So the whole thing is see what their visual needs are. I mean, even if it's playing sports, they play tennis, and maybe wearing that progressive is getting in the way. You might have to do something with a contact lens and convince them, get a, get a disposable to wear it with tennis, or they play golf. I said, find out what they knew to help do the, help them perform. And it just takes a little bit more time um, to have that conversation, but I think you have to think about what can I do to help the patient function better. Now, as you go on, so, you know, as a result of me attending a lot of continuing education, especially um, like I, I did uh, Bob Sonnet's pay seminars, that was over a year, that was, oh my gosh, that was fantastic. Everybody can't do that or go to as much continuing education as I do. But as a result of it, I have learned to prescribe differently. So, yes, do I use, I know how to use uh, different tents. I know how to use prisms a different way. Um to get a patient to function better. So I know how to take a patient down slow. I know how to not have to cycle teach every patient that's a child because I know how to 
still use the art of retinoscopy and to um, also take them down slow. Don't hurry through the exam and, and end up having the same finding as the autorefractor. So you just have to take your time. So that's my biggest advice. Um, and I know in some corporate practices, you can't take your time. So um, do the best you can do. And if you can't take your time and you need to, to, that child to have more attention, refer them. Refer them to someone who's going to take their time in the first place and, and do justice for the patient. So that's, Listen. that's my... Uh, Listening more and taking more time sound like excellent advice. And observing, and observing your patient. Yeah. So uh, getting aside from optometry, what has given you the most joy in life? Oh, watching all the accomplishments of my children. I mean, you know, basically that's your offspring. Um, so my husband and I have been so proud of our two kids. And then finally, I finally got one grandbaby who decided to be born on our wedding anniversary, oh. uh, who just turned two. Um, so I just, we, we love spending time with her. Um, and then of course, you know, my children uh, have, they've just, they, they're so funny because I give so much. They both said, well, I, I'm not doing that. I'm going to, I'm going to make money. So my son, my son was really funny. He's going to, so he graduated from DePaul in finance. And what does he end up doing? Going to get a master's in um, student affairs. So now he's giving back, working with students. And now he's at Northwestern um, as their um, director of social justice. So he, I mean, he's definitely into this whole movement, um, my liberal son. And then I have my very opinionated daughter who... Um, did the same thing. So she's going to go into law, make all this money. But what is she doing? She's a public defender, serving the people who need to have a voice. I mean, she is a fantastic advocate for them. And she told me, I said, oh, yeah, you're defending these criminals. And she says, mom, everyone is innocent until proven guilty. And even though they don't have money, they deserve a right to good representation. And I'm going to do the best to advocate for my clients. And that's what she does. So I'm really proud of her and um, a lot of her accomplishments that she's had. I mean, she's just gotten, she just shared some information with us about uh, an appointment she's getting um, to represent the um, public defenders. So um, the, the kids have done a great job. And so when you are parents and then you see that they give back and when things come up and how they share, then, you, you know, and then you watch them grow and get their homes and get married and, so all of that has been uh, a joy to me. Given so, yeah, how you have yeah. led, given how you have led your family and the, the loving life you and your husband have had, the family that you came from, it's no surprise your children are doing those kinds of things. Yeah. And they have good work. So, you know, I work with young people because I have a thing about, I started working in the office as a teen. And so mm -hmm. it takes patience and, I could hire my friends' kids, like I used to say, because they already are very polished and, I mean, they have a different background. So there, some things just came natural for them. Um, but then I started thinking, I need to hire some of these kids where the office is and give them an opportunity and teach them, even though they have to be street sometimes, teach them, okay, no, now you got to be professional. This is the way you have to speak and this is the way you have to act. 
and you, you can't be on your phone all the time. You have to be punctual. So you have to teach them like, like my, you know, and so my kids do that, but, and they have really good work ethics and, um, but they have to, they were around people that had it and that encouraged them to attend, to attend college and do their best. So that's what I just try to do that with the, the young people that I hire within the office itself. I, I, I have you know one what I last. Go ahead. Sure. Go on. You go on. I was just going to say I have a, a last question I can think of, and that is, what's the best advice you ever received from somebody? I think you've you've given a lot of great advice, but what's the best advice you ever received from someone? Um, oh, the best advice has been um, continue to do what you're passionate about, and you would enjoy it. You want it won't feel like a job. You know, and if you start doing things that you are not passionate about, it's going to be, it's going to feel like work. So that's been some of the best advice. And my my favorite scripture advice is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Uh, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all thy ways, acknowledge him and let him direct thy path. And that's been um, my favorite go-to because... I just have to keep trusting him because we've had a lot of ups and downs uh, and just keep letting him direct us and um, the things will work out. So um, that's the thing. And I'm, I'm just hoping that uh, one day optometry becomes part of the health, what is it called? The health service, national health service Corps, uh, which is basically a group of physicians and dentists who work in underserved areas, and after they work so long, their loans from um, their professional schools are forgiven, their government loans anyway. And I'm just hoping, because it's no it's no part of the budget, you know, so it's definitely something both Democrats for once, something Democrats and Republicans support. Um, we just have to get our professional colleagues to let us have a part of the pie. That's the problem, because, of course, if they give optometrists a part, there's less for their physicians and the dentists to get. So I just uh, pray that, and I, I just hope to see more federally qualified health centers um, in the country so that in other areas, people who need service can get that really, uh, you know, fantastic service for not just vision but for everything. Um, and that's the direction that I'm hoping to go. In fact, um, when I do sell the practice, and we I can devote more time to the not-for-profit. And I'm hoping to really work on a push for this so that Plano can be sustained by students who want to work in that same capacity. But they, we can't afford to pay them. But if they are working in this not-for-profit setting, their loans will be forgiven. I think it would be easier to get them to work. But um, that's a whole lot of legislative work, uh, which I, in private practice, don't have time to do right now. But that's a, that's a goal. Then I'll have more time to just spend time with my, uh, I, in fact, announcement. I'm going to have two more grandchildren this week. My daughter's having her second, and my son is having his first. So uh, wow. 2021 is going to be a great year. And they all are bugging me to, oh, Mom, you just need to retire. I said, why? To retire? To babysit? Not so fast. <laughs> 
Dr. Stephanie Johnson Brown, your stories are wonderful. Congratulations on your expanding family. And thank you so much for sharing your stories. I really appreciate what you've done for optometry and for your communities. And um, I'm really glad you shared your, your stories with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. Uh, my pleasure. And uh, if anybody wanted to get a hold of you, uh, how would they do it? How would they find you? Well, they can email me or, um, and they can always go to our website, www.planovision.org to get more information on the non-for-profit. The for-profit, of course, is the same website, but it's .com. Um, the, uh, and they can email me. So my email is S, the initials of my name, S as in Stephanie, J as in Johnson, B as in Brown, vision at gmail.com. Dr. Stephanie Johnson Brown, an inspiration. Thank you again. Thank you. And to my audience, thanks for attending and listening to Dr. Stephanie's incredible stories. Until my next sandbox story, be great at all you do.